0: Chapter of Hosea Thought it appropriate to read this chapter. Considering adoption, as we think about God who adopts us who are sinners, who, according to our sinful nature, are his enemies, and by his grace, he creates us to be children of the living God that he calls his own and that he loves and he cherishes um, by his grace, according to his love. Hosea chapter 1 uh, lays out the situation. At that time when Hosea the prophet is prophesying and receiving the word of the Lord, the sinfulness of Israel has run amok and God looks at his people and he says, you are not my people and because of your sin I am not your God. And There's a rejection there that is taking place. God is is pronouncing all of these declarations that you'll see in chapter 1. And then seemingly out of nowhere, uh, at the end of chapter 1, The Lord says, But the sons of Israel shall increase, and you shall be called the sons of the living God. That's exactly what the grace of God does. We're uh, left to ourselves, left to our own devices. Uh, We would follow the course of sin and destruction, and God, by and in his justice and by his justice, would reject us. But by his grace, he calls us and creates us to be children of God. So Hosea chapter 1, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, "Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery. And departing from the Lord, so he married Gomer, daughter of Divlaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, "Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel, and that day I will break israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, "Call her name." "'Lo, Ruhamah,' for I will no longer show love "'to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. "'Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, "'and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, "'or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God.' "'After she had weaned Lo, Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. "'Then the Lord said, "'Call his name Lo, Ami, "'for you are not my people, and I am not your God. "'Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore.' which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader, and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. In John chapter 1, John chapter 1, our New Testament reading, just one verse. The twelfth verse, John one. John one, verse twelve. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. And I didn't have you turn there, so I'll just read it for us. Our catechism lesson tonight, the shorter catechism number 24, considering adoption, says this, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Once again, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Adoption agencies have been in the news recently. Many of you perhaps in recent months have heard about uh, Bethany Christian Services, how they have changed some of their policies, Uh, to allow service to non-traditional families, that is, families with uh, two parents of the same gender. This uh, basically happened as a result of cultural pressure, the threat of long, drawn-out courts and legal battles to settle the question. And so uh, the organization caved under that pressure. More recently, even just this past week, Catholic Charities in Philadelphia, uh, even now, has an active case... During, uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court against the city of Philadelphia. The, the the city is suing the Catholic charities in Philadelphia because the city says that Catholic charities, which provides help and service for adoption, can no longer operate on their own Catholic convictions of sex, gender, and marriage. So this is all too familiar now, but it still ought to shock us when we kind of zoom back and think about what's going on in our culture and and our society. Think about all of the the problems, all the issues, the things that are proliferating, whether violence or anything else. It shocks us, or it ought to shock us, that taxpayer money is being used, along with precious man hours and resources, so that a city like Philadelphia can go after a charity, like Catholic Charities in Philadelphia, uh, which seeks to put orphan children into loving homes. That's kind of how things are... Are breaking down in our society, that kind of infighting and senseless and pointless. But why is that? It's because it is no longer good enough in society to say, well, you go your way and and I'll go mine. We'll kind of will organize around shared values in communities and groups. And each group can have their own particular shared values. That's no longer good enough, right? We're in we're living in the midst of a of a cultural and moral revolution. And if you do not join in that revolution... ...they will find you... ...and they will seek to change you. But this question of adoption agencies... ...had me thinking this past week... ...and triggered a few other questions. Why is it that adoption agencies keep coming up? Why do they keep coming into the news... ...around stories like this? Well, one thing that seems to be the case... ...if you do not forcibly secularize adoption agencies... ...there will be very few options... ...for people who need adoption agencies... ...which operate on non-Christian convictions. There just aren't many out there. And why is that? This is because... ...in the history of the issue... ...of adoption in Western civilization... ...it has absolutely and overwhelmingly... ...been Christians... ...who have created agencies... ...that help people to explore adoption... ...and achieve adoption... ...of orphan children. And this, of course spills out of the heart, the Christian heart, that is shaped by God's action towards us. God has adopted us in Christ. And the call for us to be like God, to mirror his character for us, spurs many, many Christians on to want to show forth that miraculous work of God. In Christ, we all are adopted and we experience this wonderful uh, and miraculous grace of God. This is all a very good thing. And it spills out of the love we have for God, and the love that we have for others. And it it is all done for us in this marvelous work, the doctrine of adoption. So what is adoption when we speak about it biblically and theologically, as we see in, in the catechism? The, the very term tells us something about what's going on in the the life and the heart of a person. Adoption is a change of status. A status is changing, most usually involving a child who has no family capable of providing for him or her, and that child receives the official and and even legal status of a member of a new family. We have relatives, uh, Michelle and I have relatives, who have engaged in, in adoption, and it's a very wonderful thing when it happens in the context of a, of a loving and a Christian home but as it relates to us spiritually we recognize that the change of status means that the family of God is something of which we are not members of, uh, we are not members naturally and this sounds sensible enough to our ears right we've heard that we are born and conceived in sin and we need the spirit of god to give us faith and to unite us to Christ. But this is actually, this became quite a disputed truth in the last several centuries of Christian thought, especially in centuries like uh, the the 1800s and the early 1900s. There was an idea that gained traction of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Now, what, what would that mean? That would basically mean that we all in an unqualified way, have God as our Father. And uh, the deepest brotherhood of love is the brotherhood of humanity, right? All men and women, all people, all throughout the world, what do we share? We share the common bond of humanity. And so society was to be about trying to get people to realize this and realize that if we just come together around these uh, very simple principles. God, We have God as our Father, and we all are brothers and sisters of humanity. Then we will achieve periods of great peace and prosperity. And that gave way to really the, the positive outlook on the world in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, centuries there, there was a lot of um, positive thinking that thought uh, we were going to do away with wars we were going to do away with the kinds of afflictions and conflicts that we see uh, even up to the very beginning of World War I and then of course the 20th century collapsed all of those hopes in uh, profound ways and so this doctrine of adoption had been under attack because to say that we are adopted spiritually in christ and that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of abraham the brothers of christ and the sons of god this was something that had come under uh, great fire but ephesians 2 shows that it is true ephesians two twelve. remember that you were at that time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in world the bible also speaks about God being a particular father only to those who have personal holiness he will only place his name on those who are marked by a character that is like his so second corinthians 6 God says through Paul the apostle therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the Lord and touch no unclean thing And then I will welcome you. Then I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We could think also of what we considered this morning. Jesus says that it's particularly his followers who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So we're not talking about universal truths or universal blessings. Not every human being who is born undergoes this blessing of adoption. It is reserved for the followers of Jesus. It is reserved for God's people. As this relates to the Old Testament, we can certainly say that God is portrayed in the Old Testament as the father of his people. We sang it this morning. He is a father of the fatherless. And there are other points where he is clearly called the father of Israel, corporately. So that truth is there... In the Old Testament and all throughout the scriptures. But it becomes much more central. Much more comforting of a doctrine. As we think about it through the lens of Jesus. And why is that? Well that is because Jesus is the natural son of God. Right? God is not only an adoptive father. He has a natural son. Jesus is that natural son. Eternally begotten. And their relationship has always been, that is, Jesus and the Father, has always been and it always will be. That highlights how this change of status happens for us. It happens only through our redemption, which comes at great cost to God. Galatians 4 says this, "...when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law." to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. How does adoption happen? God sends his son, born of a woman, born under law, in order to redeem. It's a wonderful verse uh, because it shows that the sending of Jesus was particularly for this blessing, that we might become the sons and daughters of God. If you consider what it would be like To be an orphan totally without any reasonable hope of someone reaching out to help you. Imagine your gratitude if someone comes to you out of the blue, plucks you up, and gives you a loving home. And then find out that it actually happened at great cost to your new adoptive parents. That they actually paid a great price and they actually went through a long and arduous process and had to go through many hurdles in order to obtain you. ...as their child. Think about how grateful you would be. That ought to compel us to think about how grateful we ought to be... ...to be a part of the family of God. It came at great cost. He gave his son. This new status that's achieved, this change of status... ...what does it entail? Well, of course, this means that we have the true God as our father... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We're united to Christ. We have the true God as Father. And that means all kinds of things. We can call upon him in prayer. When we think about prayer, we think about that primarily as adopted children. That we call upon God as as a loving father. That's why we can be assured that he hears our prayers. Not only that, but we are joint heirs with Christ what Christ has obtained and what the Father has bestowed upon him, the riches of salvation one, we become joint heirs with Christ. You are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Joint heirs with Christ. And to, have, to truly have this status of adoption of a child of God, those who truly know it, In Christ. By saving faith. That will never be taken away. John 8 verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son. Remains forever. So this ought to fill our hearts with wonder. And awe. And gratitude. if We know Jesus Christ. As savior. To call upon God as father. That change of status. Being conceived and born in sin. But. It has changed according to God's grace. How does adoption happen? What what spurs it on? What is the catalyst for adoption? Well, first is God's free and electing love. Election uh, from eternity past in the mind of God is presented to us as unto adoption. So we see in Ephesians chapter 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for what? For adoption. As sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. What is it that we do when we come together for worship? We are praising the glorious grace of God. And how do we think about that grace? We think about that grace. That he has made us his children. That we have experience this blessing of adoption so it comes from God's free electing love what we read tonight see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God in other words John is saying you need to see how much God loves us that he has made us his children it was an act not only of love but of pure grace God didn't look down into the corridors of time and say, "Okay." Who is it that's going to really deserve to be my child? Who is it that really I, I, I would do well to kind of claim that person for my own? We brought nothing in our hands. Uh, all that we have is given to us by God. And all that he uh, creates in us, which ends up glorifying Him, is by His grace anyway. So it's an act of pure grace. Well, Thomas Watson says this: All by nature are strangers; therefore, have no right to sonship. God is pleased to adopt one and not another, to make one a vessel of glory, another a vessel of wrath. The adopted heir may cry out, "Lord, how is it that Thou wilt show Thyself to me, and not unto the world?" That should be the, the heart of humility. In all of us when we think about our salvation. Why why was I made to hear thy voice? Why was I given uh, this wonderful gift of salvation? The catalyst there is God's free and electing love and his grace. But as it relates to us. Scripture presents it to us that we are adopted by faith. Faith is that grace which God gives to us. By which we appropriate this blessing of adoption. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So Watson goes on to say this, faith is a quickening grace. It is the vital artery of the soul. The just shall live by faith. If our souls have been brought to life by God's grace then we have believing hearts, believing souls. Faith makes us Christ's brothers and so God comes to be Our Father. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we become uh, the brethren of Jesus. That is how adoption happens. God's free and electing love and by our faith. It emphasizes for us once again faith in Jesus Christ and how central it is to the gospel of grace. Why? Why does God adopt? He adopts for his glory. He adopts for his glory. The end of all things. At the end of the age. What will we do? What will everyone do? We will exalt God. For the glory of his grace. When we see salvation from beginning to end. When we see all that God has done. And when we see the multitude that he has claimed for his own. The depths of sin out of which he has saved us. uh, The depths of grace which he has lavished upon us all of that will glorify god like nothing we could ever imagine so god has adopted us for his glory that he would be glorified in and through salvation but he also has adopted us for our good those two things always go together in scripture god's glory and our good. That is why we can also exult in the glory of God. That is why we can seek the glory of God, because we know that the glory of God is always tied to our good. He adopts us, why? To give us salvation. That needs no explanation. That needs no further exposition. He is uh, certainly to have salvation is to possess an eternal good. He has adopted us to give us dignity. He ennobles us with his name, as Watson says. To be adopted means that you come to bear the name of the one who adopts you. He has adopted us for freedom. For without Christ, we are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to the principle of sin and our sinful nature. But... In Christ, made alive in Christ, we are set free then to serve God. So John 8 verse 35, the Son does not remain in the house forever, the Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does freedom in Christ actually mean? Freedom in Christ means that we are set free from our bondage to sin in order to serve God what is our greatest purpose? Where, where will we find the deepest satisfaction? We will find it in serving and honoring God with our lives. So he has adopted us for salvation, for dignity, and for freedom. A couple of applications as we close tonight. The first is this. We, we are to worship God for his amazing love of adoption. When you see... You consider who, or what human beings are before they are made children of God. Uh, dead in transgressions and sin. Before the grace of God. And you realize that we bring nothing in our hands. Right? Nothing in my hands I bring. We realize that God is to be magnified and worshipped and adored for the amazing love of adoption. My great grandfather was adopted by an Irish farming family. Uh, but when he was adopted, it soon became apparent that they took him in simply because he was another set of capable hands for the work on the farm, a set of hands that did not need to be compensated. So this family brought him in uh, to work on the farm, essentially, with the veneer of adoption. At family dinner time, he would stand in the corner of the room. He was not welcome at the table. He was treated horribly by his adoptive parents. He did not Come anything close to being able to enjoy the true blessings and privileges of a family. Thankfully he became a wonderful Christian man who loved his wife and children in a godly and, and biblical manner but it shows us now that story reminds me how wondrous God's adoption of us is. In the case of my great-grandfather this family brought him in Because they looked at him and they said, well, he's got something that he can offer us. He's got something that he can give to us. So we can kind of fake this adoption thing. And we can benefit from him and and really exploit him. But in the case of our adoption, there was nothing in us that God could use or exploit. It's true that he would glorify himself in salvation, He will glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. But we still must be in awe that he would adopt his enemies. That he would adopt those who had the devil as their father. To confer it upon those who had nothing in their hands to bring him. That he would make his children appear as the sand on the seashore. As we read in Hosea chapter 1. Out of sin and out of death. And out of rebellion, us offering nothing to God and he makes us his own. So first, we worship God for his amazing love of adoption. Secondly, those who are adopted, obey. Those who are adopted, obey. To come into the family of God and to have God as your father means that you obey. Ephesians 5.1, we read it this morning for our reading of the law. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and as the beloved children of God you are to imitate your father you are to have character that is like unto the character of God our father we found this little illustration said this a Polish prince was accustomed to carry the picture of his father always in his chest and on particular occasions used to take it out and view it and he would say let me do nothing unbecoming so excellent a father This is a suitable reflection for a Christian. The more that we reflect upon God, the more that we reflect upon his character, what he has done for us, and how he has saved us, the more we will say to ourselves, let us never do anything unbecoming of so excellent a father. To be called by his name, to be known by him, means that we seek to live in ways that reflect it. Thomas Watson goes on to say this: though an adoptive, though an adopted heir of heaven, cannot obey every precept perfectly, yet he does so evangelically. So he gives an explanation here of well, what does it mean. We're called to obedience, but we know that our obedience is never perfect. So how does that? How does that work? Does God accept our obedience? Does He always look upon it and He say and He says it's nothing? It doesn't matter because it's imperfect and incomplete. Well, here. Here is what Watson says. We obey not perfectly, but we do so evangelically. That is under the gospel. What does that mean? The first thing it means is this. As, an, as a child of God seeking to obey, you, from your heart, approve of every command. Right? You go to the commands of God, you go to the law of God, and you, as a child, say, this is good, this is right, this is just, and I want to obey this command i approve of it we don't go to god's word and stand over it and say okay here are the sections that i'm going to obey and believe and here are the sections that i'm going to kind of leave to the side thomas jefferson was famous for this he had more of a problem with miracles than commands but his new testament was famously like five or six pages long we don't come to god's word and stand over it and say Okay, which parts am I going to obey? No, we approve of every command. Secondly, not only do we approve of every command, we delight in every command. Right? That old song we would sing, Oh, how I love thy law. Right? We delight in every command. Psalm 119, verse 97. His, uh, our desire is to obey every command and to honor our Father. We know that we will come short, but when we come short, how do we understand God's accepting of us? When we do so genuinely, when we do so approving of God's law, desiring to obey him, what do we do? We look up to Christ and his blood, uh, and his blood compensates us for all of our shortcomings. So Watson, Watson says, this is evangelical obedience, which though it is not perfect it is accepted by God. We obey because we have God as our Father. There is what scripture calls the obedience of faith. We trust in Christ and obedience springs forth from that faith. There is the obedience of love that we read about in 1 John chapter 3. What do we do? We love one another. We love one another. I saw something this week. It's from one of my uh, a couple of my buddies in, in seminary, and it was a little meme or whatever, and it said, sometimes we overcomplicate things, and it had about 10 or 11 points in scripture where it's the command is very simple, love one another, right? John 13, John 15, Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 Peter 1, 1 John, all over 1 John, right? Love one another. Love one another. So, the adopted obey. Next, the adopted Love to be with their father. Love to be with their father. We love to be with our father in prayer. Love to be with him in prayer. To spend time praying. Because we treasure having God as our father. We treasure the gift he has given to us in prayer. We love to be with our father in corporate worship. We love to come before the Lord and sing with others who have been redeemed in Christ and to magnify the name of God. We love to be with our Father in family time as we fellowship with other Christians and we can see the goodness and the grace of God in others. The adopted love to be with their Father. And then finally, the adopted revere and submit to their Father. We have in Him a perfect and a heavenly Father. So the heart. Uh, cry of everyone who knows him this way will be father thy will be done when jesus uh, had before him an intense suffering what was it that helped him resolve to continue the path that he was on that it was the will of his father he wanted to please his father so likewise our hearts cry ought to be the same that in all things we submit to the Father, because in doing so, we become like our Savior. We become like Jesus. We always remember that we have God as our Father because the natural Son of God gave Himself for us, and that comes at great cost to us. And the humility, uh, the, at great cost to God, and the humility that that creates in us, in our hearts, makes us look at the path that Jesus walked, and we would never say, well, it would be unjust. For me to follow some kind of path of suffering. Because we know that the suffering that Jesus suffered. uh, Was more intense than we will ever undergo. Because he has redeemed us. From knowing the wrath of God in that way. It is more unjust than anything that we would ever experience. Because he is perfectly righteous and never did anything wrong. And thus following in the way of our savior. Of our older brother we can like him submit to the will of our father and say father thy will be done may it be true in all of our hearts let's pray heavenly father we thank you and praise you and we ask that you will help us reflect upon these things and thank you for this marvelous gift of adoption in christ that comes to us by faith Uh, may we exalt in these truths and glory in them even as uh, you help us To understand them in deeper ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We end by singing Trinity Hymnal 296. 296, Trinity.